The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Investigators compared the gruesome scene of Earl and Terry Robertson's deaths to that of the Charles Manson murders. Authorities quickly zeroed in on the victim's son, Jimmy, who stood to inherit over $2 million. But what shocked the small South Carolina community the most was the alleged involvement of mild-mannered Meredith Moon. How did she become wrapped up in one of South Carolina's most horrific crimes? I'm Vinny Politan, and this week's Court TV podcast dives deeper into this case with an audio edition of our original series, Accomplice to Murder, which examines crimes involving multiple suspects, and it's not so clear exactly who is the mastermind. Take a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Anyone who knew Meredith Moon would describe her as a quiet, good person. She moved from Atlanta, where she lived with her mother, to here in Rock Hill, South Carolina, to care for her father, who had suffered a heart attack. She was a good student, and other than a few problems fitting in, she lived a normal teen life until she met Jimmy Robertson, a popular, handsome young man who would later become her boyfriend and would leave her facing the death penalty for helping him carry out a brutal double murder. Rock Hill in the late 1990s was a small town where everybody knew each other. Meredith was a good girl. She played by the rules. She did well in school. She was a helper to people that needed help. We met at a leadership school in the summer of 95 with our RTC unit. Our parents got so tired of seeing us at each other's houses. I mean, we were together day and night, night and day. There were times when she'd spend a week at my house and just go home to see her dad for a while. I knew all of Meredith's friends. We had no secrets between us. Uh, you know, if she ever had a problem, you know, she would talk to me, and I couldn't ask for a better daughter. Meredith was an exemplary student, but sometimes had trouble fitting in. You have to remember Meredith was 285 pounds. Most of her girlfriends were tiny, had boyfriends. She didn't. She was like a fifth wheel. She was obese. That had to have affected her self-esteem, which eventually led to her being seduced by Jimmy. He was this very attractive young man who was paying attention to her and who wanted to hang out with her. I met him in 1995. I worked at Papa John's Pizza, and uh, he already worked there as a delivery driver. He was just so outgoing. He was older, and that was an attraction at that age, I think. He still had many friends, and he was popular. He was good-looking. You know, he had a, a charm to him. We moved here in June of 82. The very first person to ring our front doorbell was Jimmy Robertson. He was charming. Just, you know, welcome to the neighborhood, and I understand that you have children, and he introduced himself, and I thought, oh my goodness, what a nice little fella. With the Robertson family, on the surface, at least, they looked like the all-American family. Terry and Earl met when they were in college. 
decided to get married in 1970. Shortly after that, they moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina for his job. It wasn't too terribly long before they decided that they wanted to have children. And so Jimmy was first, and then a couple of years later, his brother Chip was born. They were a family that people looked at and said, how wonderful. The parents were involved with these young boys in sports, taking them places, going on vacations. And Jimmy even, in fact, was an Eagle Scout. It was Erin Savage that brought Jimmy Robertson and Meredith Moon together. I was doing something with Meredith, and he called and said, you know, would you like to go to the mall? And we were both going to go there anyway, so we all got together and went out to dinner and went shopping. And that was, I think, the first time they met. She was so quiet at the time, and she kind of fed off his energy, you know, made her a little bit bolder. You really can't overstate the influence that he had on her as someone who she considered her first boyfriend. After dropping out of college, Jimmy started heading down a bad path. He broke into a neighbor's house and stole some pretty big ticket items and was arrested and went to jail. And one of the things about the Robertson family is that image was really important. And so you've got this kid who leaves school without finishing, gets in trouble with the law, and then actually goes to prison is unimaginable, especially to Earl, his father. Jimmy also started to do drugs with his brother, Chip. Jimmy had a fairly easy avenue to get Ridlin and they crushed it up and snorted it. That was their thing that they did together. Meredith also started partying with Jimmy. I think that it was her poor self-esteem that affected her participating in what he was doing, which was partying very hard, abusing drugs and alcohol. And she tried to keep up with that. It was just her way of fitting in when she was with Jim. Because Jim, that's what Jim did. He always, you know, he always did since I've known him. But the partying seemed to mask something off about Jimmy, behavior that hinted at something darker. He'd have wild swings in his personality. He would just be so hyper, and I guess manic is the word for it, and um, just outrageous at times. There was another troubling side of his personality, that of Jimmy the Manipulator. He was on suspended driver's license. He could go to her and say, take me here, I want to go here. And she'd say, okay, we'll go there. I think he just saw someone that he could use and manipulate. After Jimmy got out of prison, he worked just kind of odd jobs, Papa John's, places like that. Was not able to stay in his apartment, got kicked out, went home, and then things really got bad. Earl had finally gotten tired, and it put his foot down and told Jimmy, I'm going to give you enough money to live for three months. After that, whether you're on the street, whatever happens to you, that's up to you. Don't come back to me. We're closing the bank. Jimmy realized Earl meant business this time, and so he needed to act quickly. Jimmy's reaction to his father's ultimatum frightened Terry enough that she mentioned it to her friend Jane Langley. They had tried everything. They were at their wits end. She said, you know, Jane, I fear for my life. Jimmy could very easily come back here and try to kill us. There were times where we would just be, you know, sitting around watching TV and something would come on TV that about parents or murders, and he would, he would turn to me and say, I'm going to kill my parents. Coming up, 
Jimmy, with the help of Meredith, decides to put his plan into action. It was like Helter Skelter. I mean, the, the movie with Charles Manson. Like somebody had just poured blood into a sprayer and sprayed the walls. After getting kicked out of his apartment, Jimmy Robertson moved back into his childhood room in the basement of his parents' home here in Rock Hill. When Earl and Terry Robertson didn't show up for work on November 25th, 1997, this is where police went to check on them. The grisly scene inside that house is something that still haunts law enforcement to this day. We see traumatic things every day. We see people die every day. We see children die. We see people murdered. I'd definitely seen nothing of that magnitude before. Investigators filmed the scene that greeted them. A lot of chaos downstairs. Everything was disarrayed. The, the window was broken and um, came across Mr. Robertson's body there in the hallway. For me, it was utter disbelief. And we went into the bedroom. When we checked Mrs. Robertson, that's when I really just you know, very seldom am I at a loss for words. It's something that I'll never forget. A knife had been broke during the commission of the crime. This was a very, very traumatic death, and it had to have been very violent. We just knew that we had two people that had been murdered, and it was obvious that one did not murder the other. The iron smell from the blood was what really stood out. The blood was up and down the hallway on the walls, the ceiling. Lieutenant Hager initially thought this might be a robbery, but there was something that didn't quite sit right with him. Somebody busted out the window of the basement from inside the house and said the outside of the house from where we found the glass and that kind of thing. It was a futile attempt to make it look like a burglar, in my opinion. This thing had been staged. There's a note that police find in the house, and that note says, Dear Mom and Dad, gone to get Chip in his car. He needs me now. Love, Jim. Wayne Langley, he'd lived right across the street. And I asked Wayne if he'd seen anything, and he said, Well, I saw Jimmy and a blind-headed girl leaving this morning about 8, 8.15. When I'd get papers, saw him, waved to him. As a matter of fact, he said, I think that's her car down the street. We found a wallet laying in the floor of the bedroom. That wasn't a credit card. In. Did some bank searches, found out he had a credit card, started tracking it. Police tracked the Robertson's credit cards, and they got a hit at a gas station and market just a few miles from Rock Hill. When they took a look at the surveillance video, they discovered Jimmy accompanied by a relaxed-looking Meredith. We got her on camera at the convenience store, and both of them act like nothing had happened. You could see them smiling and cutting up with the clerk, that kind of thing. That's when she first came to the forefront. Rock Hill PD put out a nationwide alert for law enforcement to be on the lookout for Jimmy Robertson and Meredith Moon. The couple turned up in front of Chip Robertson's apartment in Philadelphia, where police dragged them out of their car and placed them under arrest. We knew Meredith was with Jimmy. As far as you know, you've got two murderers. The first thing law enforcement does is separate the two of them and, you know, try to get the stories. She was mad because they roughed her up, said she got roughed up when they threw her on the ground and that kind of thing. Jimmy, he said, there's only two people and knows what went on in the house. None of us are going to talk. I was 
was in total denial. Once it was confirmed that, yes, she was involved, I think it's more or less like a nightmare that you don't wake up from. When it come out in the papers where they say, you know, both charged with, with two counts of murder, I was like, no, not Meredith. The papers don't know what they're talking about. You know, you never can trust what's in the media. It was a while before I really stopped and said, okay, she was there, that does make her involved. She was initially charged with two counts of murder, also charged with carrying a weapon in the commission of a violent crime, two counts, as well as criminal conspiracy. Obviously, murder is the most serious charge you can face in South Carolina. The police initially thought that Chip might also be involved based on a phone call between Chip and Jimmy hours before the murder. There was a 45-minute phone call from Jimmy to Chip that morning. It's like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Chip was interviewed by Philadelphia police. Just pretty much said he didn't know anything about anything, and uh, he was anticipating, according to him, that he was coming back to Rock Hill to celebrate Thanksgiving. Lacking any evidence against Chip, the police trained their sights on Jimmy and Meredith. Her boyfriend has pulled her into something. She's in it now. If he goes down, she goes down. Now she's part of it. She knew enough to know I'm an accomplice. After being arrested in Philadelphia for the brutal murders of Earl and Terry Robertson, their son Jimmy and his girlfriend Meredith Moon were brought back to South Carolina and jailed here at the Moss Justice Center. The fate of Meredith hung in the balance as prosecutors had to decide whether or not to move forward with their plans to treat Meredith as an accomplice to murder. I believe very shortly after their arrest, everything became very real to her. Now she suddenly realizes this is not playtime, this is deadly serious, and my life is hanging in the balance. Harry Dest was Meredith's defense attorney. She actually never inflicted any deadly wounds on anyone. She never actually beat anyone. The choices were either leave or be a part of it in her mind. What we wanted to do was a plea bargain to testify against Jimmy Robertson so that this young woman with no prior criminal record, no history of violence, could be out of prison someday, that we could salvage her life. We might not have been able to prove this case, so we needed Meredith more than Jim did. Prosecuting attorney Kevin Brackett immediately recognized how important Meredith would be to their case. Nobody else other than Jimmy was left to give any sort of accounting of what took place, so it was absolutely critical in giving the jury a glimpse into the sequence of events that took place that night. She understood that she had lied. She had lied to the police, she had lied to her father, she had lied to her friends, she had lied to herself. She wanted that part of her life to be done. She was advised by law enforcement officials of her right to counsel, of her right to remain silent, and she gave up or waived those rights and gave a full-fledged statement, and then subsequently waived the extradition process and was transported to York County. She confessed everything and was key, I'm telling you, key to the evidence that we confiscated out of a dumpster in Maryland. It was a trash bag full of everything. The baseball bat, knife, claw hammer, clothes, you name it, everything that we needed. 
To get there before it ended up in the landfill was nothing short of a miracle. So Meredith's cooperation regarding evidence was critical. The trial for the gruesome double murder of Earl and Terry Robertson was held here in March of 1999. With Meredith now a star witness, all eyes were on Jimmy Robertson, and he seemed to love the attention. We would try to get footage of Jimmy Robertson coming into the court and leaving court. He always had a book or files under his arms, and he would saunter into court with the confidence of a quarterback about to play a big game. Jim's been basking in the, in the media attention of this trial. When he comes out of the holding cell, first thing he does is scan to see who's there. He'll, he'll grin at the camera, he'll look around. He's done that throughout the months of hearings we've had. Jimmy really enjoyed the attention. At times, he would turn around and look at people. He would look straight into the television camera in this sort of spooky, blank way that you would associate with someone who really was pathological. It's the prosecution's theory that Jimmy Robertson murdered his parents because he wanted to inherit their millions and he wasn't going to wait until they died a natural death. Can you tell the jury what the approximate worth of the estate was at the time of Earl and Terry Robertson's death? Yes, their combined gross estates are approximately 2,200,000. And can you tell the jury who the beneficiaries of that estate were? Yes, uh, their children. But the testimony that everyone was waiting for was that of Meredith Moon. Call your next witness. Please, the court state would call Meredith Moon. What she ended up telling us was just mind-boggling. When she testified, she was very clear, she was very composed, she was very deliberate. It was a jaw-dropping story. To this day, it is one of the most compelling eyewitness accounts that I have ever heard in a trial. He's not that savvy of a criminal, and he wasn't thinking, you know, about the consequences of bringing an accomplice along and what that might mean if they were questioned. What did you do after you spoke with your dad? I left my house, and I stopped, and I bought a pack of cigarettes, and then I went to Jim's house. After snorting Ritalin, Jimmy told Meredith that he was going to kill his parents. They would stay up all night until the alarm rang in his parents' bedroom. Jimmy's plan was to first kill his mother while his father showered. After the shower started running, I heard signs of a struggle, and I heard his mom screaming. And she... What was she screaming? She was screaming for Earl. And she, and she kept saying, no, Jimmy, no, Jimmy. Meredith put her hands over her ears to drown out the screams. I went outside and I smoked a cigarette. I went back in and I sat on the couch in Jim's bedroom. Jim called me from upstairs, said like, Meredith, in a whisper, but in a loud whisper, loud enough that I could hear it downstairs. When Meredith got to the top of the stairs, she saw Jimmy at the end of the hallway covered in blood a broken knife in one hand. But there was one part of Meredith Moon's testimony that clashed with her image of a helpless accomplice. He told me to go get him a knife from the kitchen and 
and I went into the kitchen and I tried to go out the garage door, which it was locked. I got him the knife, went back through the den, and I gave it to him, and he told me to go sit back downstairs. What was the next thing you heard or saw? I heard a thumping noise. It was loud enough for me to hear downstairs. It was like a hand beating a pillow. Jim came back downstairs. He had blood all over him, all over his clothes, all over his shirt and pants. He told me to, you know, to be quiet for a second. And he thought he heard something upstairs, so we went back upstairs. She didn't leave the scene. Like she didn't extricate herself from the situation. Could she have run out of the house? Why didn't you just leave? No matter how badly you felt for her, you realize that she wasn't immobile. She could have helped. She could have prevented this. She could have been a hero. And she wasn't. Then Kevin Brackett asked the question that was on everyone's mind. Why didn't you run? Why didn't you run back to your car or run over to a neighbor's house? That is the number one question you hear from compliant accomplices. Why didn't I leave? Why didn't I go to the police? Why didn't I turn him or her in? They're so stunned at their own behavior and they can't understand how they got to that position. You do it, and now that you've done it, you have to follow through. I was in shock. You've got to understand that during, during my relationship, friendship, whatever it was with Jim, he took advantage of me, he manipulated me, and he played me. That made me more terrified of what would happen if I did run. It made me terrified of what would happen if I didn't. I did not know what to do, so I did nothing. You know, he controlled her, manipulated her to a point where, quite frankly, she didn't feel like she could leave. I was so scared that I just, I went along with whatever he did because that was the only thing that I knew what to do. Coming up, the defense attempts to undercut the credibility of Meredith Moon's testimony. And she'll say anything because it's her skin, folks. After Meredith's damning testimony for the prosecution, it was Jimmy's defense team's turn to challenge her story. Jimmy Robertson's attorneys were James Boyd and Bill Hancock. They were experienced criminal defense attorneys, and they had to be death qualified to be able to represent Jimmy Robertson because he was facing the ultimate punishment for killing his parents. He's one of the more interesting people I've ever met in that he's very intelligent. He is a young man that does have emotion. He's not the uh, absolutely cold, cold-hearted person that the state tried to betray. The defense's strategy rested on calling into question Meredith's motives for testifying. The defense suggested that she was a liar and that the only reason why she was testifying was to save her own skin and to avoid a more lengthy sentence than she was already facing. We were trying to at least show that she would lie, uh, that she didn't remember some of the details as correctly as, as they should have been, that she had statements that were somewhat contradictory. 
the entire case basically hinges on one Meredith Moon. You know that she has lied. She lied all the way up and down the East Coast. Then she, by omission, she lied to the police, and she told you she's facing the death penalty, a life in prison that's possibility of parole, and so she makes a deal and gets up here and sits on the witness stand, and she'll say anything because it's her skin, folks. The defense made a big deal about Meredith's weight at the time of the murders. As you sit here before us, you don't have the same appearance that you did in November of 1997, do you? No, sir, I don't. You've lost approximately 90 pounds, haven't you? About that, yes, sir. Okay, and how much did you weigh on November 25th, 1997? I would say around 270, 280. A good bit larger than Jimmy, right? Yes, sir. By the time she took the stand, she'd lost 90 pounds. It was one more time when Meredith was bullied for her weight. You know, they said, you're bigger than him. Why didn't you just prevent this from happening? Your car was in operable condition, is that correct? Yes, sir, it was. So you could have walked out of there and driven off? I could have. But you chose not to? I chose not to because I was scared. Well, you never testified that Jimmy grabbed you or threw you around or anything else. You were much bigger than he was. He didn't drag you up any stairs or drag you in the door, did he? No, sir, he did not. I think I was in shock. I was in more of denial of what was happening. I was trying not to... I was trying to forget what was happening. I didn't want it to be true. Physical size is not the same as your psychology. You can be the larger one, but not have the personality that is aggressive and assertive and, you know, commanding. So you still might not be the person who can do anything about it. And did you make it a habit of lying? No, sir, I do not. Well, on this evening, just to start, you lied to your daddy, is that correct? Yes, sir, but under the circumstances, I felt it was okay. I did not want my parents, I did not want my dad to think that I was going up to Philadelphia with a guy who I, who he did not know, so I chose to tell a lie to him. And you also chose to tell a lie to your best friend. I do not lie to my best friend, but I did on that occasion. But you decided since it was convenient that you would just go ahead and tell that lie, is that right? To some extent. It was easier to tell a lie and it would have been to face the consequences, wouldn't it? That is correct. Is that what you're doing now? No, sir, it is not. It's not. Everything that I have said today, I have also told my attorneys. I am not saying anything just because Mr. Pope or Mr. Brackett want me to. Everything that I've said today and will say today, I've said to my attorneys before many times. Jimmy's defense attorneys did spend some time cross-examining Meredith, but she was very credible as a witness, and they didn't really get that much out of her that was helpful. It would now be up to the judge to determine the fate of Meredith Moon. Meredith went back into court and pled guilty to two counts of accessory after the fact and robbery. She had probably 20 people standing around behind her, her parents, her cousin, various other people that she has known through her life. 
as a public defender for almost nine years now. This case is one which is one of the most unusual. How could someone with so much good in them be involved in something so bad? She has begun a long journey of rehabilitation. She was cooperative, and I believe that her testimony was critical and crucial to the prosecution's case. Anything you'd like to say? I've had time to think of the judgment calls that I've made and the seriousness of them. I am so truly sorry to the Robertson family, my own family and the community. I'm not a bad person. I've made, I've just made bad mistakes. And you will never realize how truly sorry I am. She seemed almost eager to get this over with, that she was admitting her guilt and going to be moving past all this trauma. All right, Miss Moon, uh, on armed robbery, indictment 98GS461026. Sentence the court is for 10 years. On each of the accessory after the fact of murder, the sentence is for 10 years. They're to run consecutive to the armed robbery and concurrent to each other's. The sentence she wound up getting was the absolute best sentence that she could have received under the plea agreement. You know, it was 20 to 60 year range and she got 20. That's what we thought the best case scenario was. It was tough even to see her catch that amount of time. There was no way around it. If you gave her some soft deal, then suddenly it weakens her credibility with the jury. She made certain decisions. She made certain bad decisions. But ultimately, that train was driven by Jimmy Robertson, not by Meredith Moon, and I think the judge recognized that. There was so much sadness in the room. You know, she would have to spend a significant amount of time in prison. Sadness in the fact that you know her parents knew how difficult it would be for her. After the doors were shut, after the sentence was given, you know, she cried. But she also was extremely grateful for getting a second chance at life, for she could be the person that so many people knew that she could be. Coming up, the jury makes its decision about whether Jimmy Robertson is guilty of murdering his parents and whether he should live or deserves to die. In exchange for testifying against Jimmy Robertson, Meredith Moon received a reduced sentence and would one day walk free. The jury now had to decide if Jimmy would live the rest of his life in prison or face the ultimate punishment. After stunning eyewitness testimony from Meredith Moon, who described in vivid detail how Jimmy Robertson killed both his parents, the remainder of the trial moved quickly. In light of Meredith's testimony and the mountain of physical evidence against their client, Jimmy's lawyers seemed resigned to a guilty verdict. There is no defense we really plan on putting up. Should it reach the death penalty phase of the trial, I do plan on presenting evidence to convince the jury not to give him the death penalty. How much more damning evidence could you possibly need? It was just such a compelling powerful case there really wasn't much to discuss in in terms of you know maybe he did it maybe he didn't do it that that, that should never even enter into the equation 
After two and a half days of testimony, the state of South Carolina rested its case. In his closing arguments, prosecutor Kevin Brackett didn't hold back. This is the wills of Terry and Earl Robertson. This case boils down to a dollar sign. That's exactly what it is. This greedy little man right here couldn't wait. He couldn't wait for the money to come to him. The jury deliberated only a few hours before returning a verdict. All right, bring in the jury. Mr. Foreman, understand the jury has reached verdicts. Yes, sir, yeah. The state of South Carolina versus James D. Jarnett Robertson under indictment 98 GS 46 1020 charge of murder. The verdict is guilty. I didn't feel with the strength of the evidence that we we're looking at a circumstance where there was going to be a not guilty, but to have them come back and give what I truly believe is the exact just verdict in this case was, was, you know, personally and professionally very satisfying. Anticipating a guilty verdict, the defense held back until the penalty phase. Now they fought to save Jimmy's life. We needed to find an explanation, and that's what we tried to do by presenting the experts concerning Jimmy's mental condition to try to show the jury an explanation as to how it came to this. Carrie Robertson has bipolar disorder. She has the same thing he does. It's no one's fault, but it was passed down from her, and he got it. This is no excuse for murder, but he can't help it. They also called on an expert witness who tested Jimmy's brain with what was then considered to be state-of-the-art technology. This cap, which you place on subject's head, will detect the brain electrical activity. He has uh, brain dysfunction. It's a broad area of the brain, and some of the main problems that would show up behaviorally would be problems with emotional control. Then, Jimmy took the stand to plead for his life. The jury had not heard from him to that point. He decided that he would not testify, and I think that was a good decision. <laughs> I'll never be able to explain. I'll never know why or how or anything. I know that it happened. By having him address the jury, hopefully we would get some sympathy Allow me to reach out to others so that a similar thing like this never happens, never, ever happens to anybody again. I ask that you spend some time with your decision. Thank you. The jury's judgment was swift. State of South Carolina versus James D. Jarnett Robinson, 98 GS 46-10-20-10-22. Jury's determination of the sentence to be imposed. We, the jury, in the above entitled case, unanimously recommend that the defendant, James DeJarnett Robinson, be sentenced to death. No matter what side you're on, there's a sadness to the end of this story. He's going to be put to death. And what makes it really sad is that Earl and Terry, as much as they suffered and as violent as their deaths were, they would have forgiven Jimmy Robertson because he was their son. 
Jimmy was scheduled to be executed in 2000. 23 years later, he remains on death row. I spoke with him by phone in May and played back a clip of his plea to the jury. This call is now being recorded. Although I don't look forward to it. I do not look forward to spending the rest of my life in prison. I realize that there are consequences for my actions. Jimmy, can you explain to us what's going through your mind in that moment, making that plea to the jury? I would never make that statement at the end. I think I got the better end of the deal. I want no part of life without parole. Are you telling me today that if you went back in time, you would ask this jury to put you on death row? Putting me in general population for life without parole, that now seems like the harshest punishment. Being executed is a very convenient way to die. Either way, you're going to die in the state's hands. I just want to focus in on the trial for a second. The prosecutor called you a greedy man. Do you think that was fair? No, I think spoiled would be a really fair term, but greedy, it, it's just a story he wants to tell. He's entitled to his opinion. Well, let me ask you, do you blame anyone else for what happened? No, absolutely not. I was never held responsible for a lot of things as a kid. I am being held responsible now. Let's talk about the murders. Why do you think you did it? I wish there was a one-sentence answer for that. I think the drug usage that night had a lot to do with it. The argument that my father and I got into that night probably played a part in it. Do you think about your parents at all? Yeah. I mean, they're my parents. One way or another, I think about my parents every day. It would be hard not to think about them. Considering that I talk to my brother at least once or twice a week. Coming up, one person oddly absent from Jimmy's trial was his brother, Chip. I had questions about Chip's role in this because he was going to be Jimmy's alibi. Jimmy is currently on death row at the Broad River Correctional Facility and was originally scheduled to be executed in 2000. At one point, he came within days of being put to death before being granted a stay. Jim is getting closer and closer to uh, what may actually be an execution. Realistically, Jim could be executed within the next year or so. Let's just say that I have less days ahead of me than I have to have. How long I might have is, is simply speculation on my part and anybody else's part. He doesn't get many visitors except for one, his brother Chip. My relationship with Chip now is, is great. He now lives closer by, so I get to see him a lot more often. It wasn't always this good. Let's just say that. At times, it was a bit of a roller coaster. Chip didn't attend Jimmy's trial, but the defense tried to bring him into the courtroom nonetheless. Somebody bled on this moccasin. Somebody that was not Jimmy Robertson. The defense tried to suggest that blood found at the scene could be Chip's. Is I thought that you said that it was Jimmy's DNA, it was on the green pillowcase, and that was identified. That's correct. But you did not identify his DNA there. <clears throat> 
I can't, I can't say exactly whose it is, but I cannot exclude those three individuals. Well, there's a little bit of difference in saying exactly whose it is and not being able to exclude, isn't there? There's a lot of difference, yeah. Right. So you couldn't exclude any offspring at that? That's okay. right. Right. That's right. Meredith Boone's testimony about their conversation while driving to pick up Chip in Philadelphia suggested that Chip might have known about Jimmy's plans. We didn't have a discussion. Um, he was more or less talking to himself. He kept saying that Chip was going to be so proud. Chip was going to be so proud. He kept saying that over and over and over. He was going to pick Chip up and we were going to drive back. He was going to let me out and I was to go home and that him and Chip were going to go into the house and discover the bodies, call 911, et cetera, et cetera. Chip was never charged in any way in connection with the murder of his parents. There were some curious things that we still wonder about to this day. A phone call at about 3 in the morning, 30 or 45 minutes between Chip and Jimmy immediately prior to the death of Earl. But Jimmy insists on that call. He and his brother only talked about their holiday plans. I wanted to talk to him a lot earlier, but my father banned my brother from calling and banned anybody in the household that night from calling him. It became obvious that I just have to wait for mom and dad to go to bed and then I'd be able to talk to him. And I really just wanted to get him home for Thanksgiving. And his remarks to Meredith? It was a statement coming from a, a drugged up guy that had just committed two murders. It's a really stupid remark. Chip wasn't going to be proud of me. Jimmy never claimed that Chip had any direct involvement, and certainly Chip said that he didn't. But if Chip grieved his parents' death, he didn't do so in a conventional manner. I recall after the trial was over, we got word through law enforcement, Chip would host parties in which they would take black lights in the hall and show the blood spatter from the father in the bedroom of the mother. As for Meredith, Jimmy holds no ill will towards her and her testimony that helped put him on death row. She is entitled to protect herself. She's entitled to tell the truth. I don't hold any of that against her. She had the right to tell the truth, to tell her truth. For Meredith, Jimmy's sentence helped bring closure to a horrifying chapter in her life. She believed that that was appropriate for what he did. The enormity of his crime had, had sunk in by that point. She did a lot to help the other female inmates while she was at this detention center. You know, she had a heart for people. She was able to really interact with those women and help them and utilize her educational background, her intelligence to help them. That will always be part of her. She will always have to acknowledge that she was part of the double homicide and didn't do the right thing right away. Meredith Moon served just over 10 years of her 20-year sentence. She has since been released and has moved out of state. I kept in touch with Meredith, and I spoke to her uh, several times. I know she uh, moved to Georgia. She was married, had, uh, had a family there. And I hope that she has found some peace with the fact that she was manipulated. She didn't do the right thing. But she did the things she could do, and she needs to forgive herself for that. There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Accomplice to Murder. If you want to see more of our original series, they are available to stream for free 
on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, you can see me every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern on my show, Closing Arguments. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.